Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territories of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. This week, we are featuring the second in a four-part series of interviews related to the four great assassinations of the 1960s. This week, our subject will be the death of a president named John F. Kennedy. With nearly six decades of evidence appearing in print and on some media sites, the way in which the crime was executed leads many to distrust the official story. Will this question ever be resolved? To help answer the question, we walk through the controversy with the help of a star researcher, James DiEugenio. Here he is again on the Global Research News Hour. We're going to start this hour with the death of the first figure of the prominence who was taken out November 22, 1963. His name was John F. Kennedy. Uh, Circumstances pointed to numerous contradictions in the official story leading some to believe, among other things, that Lee Harvey Oswald could not have been the lone gunman and that the president's death was due to a conspiracy, most likely helped if not orchestrated by the Central Intelligence Agency. The movie JFK by director Oliver Stone was released in 1991, which already energized the public to uh, the point of badgering the government into releasing more information from their own files. 30 years later, a sequel of sorts is available as of this week, outlining some more of the, the new details that were released. On today's show, we're going to hear some of those details and maybe even an appraisal of, of whether this situation will be put to rest nearly 60 years after the incident in Dallas. Jim DiEugenio, Jim DiEugenio is back this week. Uh, he is, uh, as we mentioned, a researcher and writer on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and, and other mysteries of that era. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, Oliver Stone's recent theatrical release is based on Jim's own research and writing. Jim's vast array of research on the four assassinations can be found at the site kennedysandking.com. James DiEugenio, it is a pleasure to have you back this week. Uh, Jim, I've not yet seen the release of the movie this week, but I I read some of the articles about it online, uh, generally positive. Um, what kind of feedback has Oliver Stone and yourself received from the the release, again, 30 years after JFK and nearly 60 years after the crime was committed? Uh, Well, this is pretty much almost the uh, 30th anniversary of Oliver's uh, release of his 1991 film JFK. Right. And it's odd. Well, maybe not odd, because in Europe, it's been very well received. Okay. And they had to actually open up a second showing, uh, a public showing after the actual premiere, which was on the 12th. Okay. And 
almost all the reviews that I got from Europe through the releasing company were pretty good. Now, of course, what happens in the United States, because, of course, we have a very serious problem in the United States with the JFK assassination, which I'm sure you're aware of. Okay, the media is a large part of the problem. Okay, all right. And, but in the United States, it's been much more decidedly mixed. All right. The Daily Beast did, you can only be called a hatchet job. All right. And Variety, Owen Gleiberman, um, that was just almost embarrassing. All right. Um, but there have been some good ones, some mixed ones. But the amazing thing is this, is... Uh, Remember, this is a documentary. You sell it to TV networks and channels. You don't release it in theaters. This film has only been screened three times at the Cannes Film Festival. Okay? So maybe at the most, 1,200 people have seen it. All right? If you Google in... The title of the film, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. You will get five pages of entries on a film that was a documentary that's just been released 48 hours ago. Okay. To me, I, you know, I wrote this in a couple of uh, online forums. This is unprecedented. I've never heard of such a thing that a documentary gets that kind of instant exposure. And this tells me, of course, that the JFK assassination is not dead and buried, okay? As most of the people in the media want us to believe, you know? It's actually alive, all right? Uh, it's sort of uh, stasis that can be reactivated anytime somebody like Oliver decides to do a, a, a documentary. Now, I wrote the documentary, so people might think I'm a little biased, um, but I will say this. There has never been a documentary that, to my knowledge, had a three-time Oscar winner as a director, Oliver, of course, a three-time Oscar winner as the cinematographer, Robert Richardson, all right? An Oscar winner, Whoopi Goldberg, as one of the narrators, and an Oscar and an Emmy winner, Donald Sutherland, as the other narrator. So you add it all up, you know? Uh, that's very, well, let's not say unusual, it's unprecedented as far as I know. And the film itself... And this is what people are avoiding because I don't think they want to confront it in the United States. The film itself is based upon the declassified files of the Assassinations Record Review Board. And let me explain what that was. When JFK was released back there in 1991, the very last title on screen said words to the effect 
that the files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the last formal investigation of the JFK assassination, were classified until the year 2029, which is true. And by the way, because that was a congressional committee, you could not use the Freedom of Information Act to get any of their documents, okay? You could only do that in the executive branch, all right? So when people realized that, they sent faxes, letters, telegrams to Washington and said, why are you doing this? All right, and so that created an uproar. And so Congress created something called the Assassinations Record Review Board, in which they were supposed to declassify everything related to the JFK case. Now, let me, this is a very important point that very few people understand. And I want to explain it so people will understand it. The Freedom of Information Act, if you file a lawsuit, okay, you are the plaintiff in the lawsuit. You're bringing the charges, okay? Number one, you don't get to see the document, okay, that, you're, that you want to have declassified, all right? And you bear the burden of proof in saying that this is very, very important to the public and should be declassified. That's what you're up against. And the FBI or the CIA or the State Department will contest you with everything they have, all right? And if you get the wrong judge, you're probably not going to win. Well, see, what the, what the review board did was different. They saw the document. They were allowed to see the document. And then either the FBI or the CIA or the State Department had to make the case why it should stay closed. In other words, they had to bear the burden of proof. Very different. And I can tell you, they didn't like it. All right. Uh, when John Thunheim, who was the chairman of that board, in our film, he relates a story. The first meeting with the CIA, they put a document on the screen. No redactions at all. And he says, okay, to the CIA guy there, what on earth could you object to in declassifying that document? Right. And the guy said, I don't know, give me a couple minutes, I'll think of something. See, this is the attitude these people have. Okay, they don't want to they don't want to declassify anything. And Tunheim actually said that. You know, if it, they would have had their way, they wouldn't have given us anything. At the first meeting with the FBI. Another another true story. All right. Uh Tunheim said we want to declassify this. We will. If you don't give us a very good reason why we should not. The FBI guy was there with the lawyer. He turns to the lawyer and he says, can they really do that? And the lawyer says, yeah, that's what the law says now. This is what I mean. See, these guys, they have been allowed to classify so many things for so long that they don't want to give the public anything if they don't have to. Maybe you could talk to the uh, 
Yeah, maybe before you say much more, assuming I'm talking to a lot of listeners who are maybe vaguely familiar, maybe you could just maybe remind them, uh, you know, there's a series of concerns uh, about the official explanation. I mean, the Warren Commission said Lee Harvey Oswald did it all by himself without any help from anyone else. That got partially updated after the 1978 House Select Committee on Assassinations, admitting at least one more gunman, but not much more than that. But could you maybe just take just 10 minutes, you know, just a, as a quick listing, if you will, of the most. Uh, you, you want me to talk about the House Select Committee? Is that it? Well, well, I'd like to maybe talk about some of the, the, the more telltale signs that, uh, you know, at the end of it, that, uh, that the explanation we have simply doesn't make sense. All right. The House Select Committee on Assassinations was created in 1976 as a result of the national showing for the first time of the Zapruder film, which happened the year before. Again, the public was outraged when they saw the Zapruder film because the Zapruder film gives all the indications that Kennedy was hit from the front and Oswald was behind them. All right. So they created this body to do an investigation. Now, the first chief counsel for the House Select Committee was a guy named Richard Sprague, a very famous prosecutor from Philadelphia who had a terrific reputation for being a very thorough and a very intelligent um, criminal prosecutor, all right? I won't go into the whole long story of how Sprague was displaced, but he was, all right? And so they brought in a new chief counsel, and Robert Blakey didn't have the kind of criminal credentials that Sprague did, all right? And he also decided to run a rather closed kind of proceeding, whereas Sprague wanted to run a very open kind of a proceeding. All right. Now, be, this, this ended up being a very confusing result because although they ended up saying that Kennedy was very probably killed as a result of the conspiracy, they still had Oswald firing from the sixth floor. Okay. All right. Yeah. And and they said the guy from the grassy knoll, based on the acoustics evidence, the guy from the grassy knoll missed, but he did fire. Okay. And Robert Blakey says that to this day, you know, that there was a crossfire, but the guy from the front missed. And so, and he also, by the way, they also bought the single bullet theory. Okay, now in our film, we pretty much demolish the single bullet theory. Okay, and we go, we do this in a lot of different ways, you know. Um, but they actually did stand by the single bullet theory. Now, the way they tried to prove this was through something 
called neutron activation analysis. Today it's called uh, comparative bullet lead analysis or comparative bullet lead testing. That particular test, which is supposed to prove that a batch of bullets came from the same box, has now been completely discredited. In fact, to the point that the FBI will never use it in court again. All right. The other way they tried to prove the single bullet theory was through a trajectory analysis. All right. The problem with their trajectory analysis is that the guy who did it for them, Tom Canning, moved the bullet entrance wound from Kennedy's back up to his neck. We now have his drawings and his work now. And you can see how he changed the measurements in order to make his trajectory analysis work. All right. He also placed the bullet wound in the back of Kennedy's skull. It was originally during the autopsy at the bottom of Kennedy's skull. The House Select Committee moved it to the top of Kennedy's skull. All right. All right. So in other words, you know, the trajectory analysis was not based upon what we call very solid medical science or definite points of entry and exit on the body. And in fact, the reason you can't do this is because the autopsy in the Kennedy case was an utter and complete mess. And it still is. All right. There's there's never been. And by the way, I have to say. The ARB did its own investigation into the medical evidence, and they did a very good job, I thought, as far as they could go. You, you can only go so far today because so many people have passed on, you know, but they did do a pretty decent job calling in the witnesses that they did call. And in fact, I believe that the ARB actually did prove that there was even more interference with Kennedy's autopsy that night than we had ever thought of, you know, and, and they actually proved it with some very good evidence. Yeah. So you had, uh, you've got, uh, I mean, not only that, but uh, the fact that his body was moved from, from, instead of doing the autopsy in Dallas, they moved him up to Maryland, and then they had some other person shift the civilians aside and effectively do the autopsy. I mean, so you're de you're dealing not only with the, the the conspiracy to commit the crime, but also a conspiracy to cover it up, right? Well, okay, uh, you bring up a very interesting point. All right, by Texas law, since Kennedy was killed in Dallas, Kennedy's autopsy should have been done there. Okay, for whatever reasons. The Secret Service did not want it done there, okay? And so they got into this very bad argument with Coroner Earl Rose. They essentially shoved him aside, and they brought the body back to the East Coast, Bethesda, Maryland, the Bethesda Me uh, Medical Center, which was a Navy operation. Now... <laughs> What's so amazing about this is that 
you would think that the autopsy doctors would want to have only their autopsy team there. It turned out that there were probably 40 people there that night in the gallery. Okay. And this included all kinds of military brass. All right. Most likely Curtis LeMay was there flying in from Canada. All right. So, and there's no doubt today, there is absolutely no doubt today that these guys interfered with Kennedy's autopsy. All right. At the trial of Clay Shaw in 1969, Pierre Fink, one of the three autopsy doctors, for the first time pulled back the curtain, all right, and told us what really happened there. In any gunshot wound, medical autopsy, there almost has to be what they call a dissection or tracking of the wounds in the body. What that means is that you go into the bullet holes and you clear out all the tissue, blood, if any bone got lodged in it, and you explore where the bullet wound came in and where it came out. Now, the official story has that there were two bullet holes in Kennedy. One went through his back, one went through his skull. If you can believe it, if you can believe this, and it's true, neither of those bullet wounds was dissected. Now, I talked for the documentary we did, I talked to Dr. Henry Lee. Dr. Henry Lee is probably the most famous criminalist in, a, in America, maybe the world. Really? Yes. All right. And I asked him this question. I said, can you figure out a trajectory of a bullet if the wound is not dissected? And he said, it's extremely difficult, okay, if the wound is not dissected. Okay. And he, he actually leaned towards the negative. So in other words, what I'm saying is if neither of Kennedy's wounds was dissected, you cannot for sure know a, the directionality of where the bullets came from or how they transited through Kennedy's body. And in fact, this is true to this day. Nobody can say for sure. Okay. And let me add one last thing. It was found out rather late. I think it took to 1965 that Kennedy's brain is missing from the National Archives. Okay. Again, today, nobody can say for certain you know, why this is the case, but it is the case. All right. Cyril Wecht went into the archives. Oh, I, no, actually, I think that's wrong. It wasn't until 1972 that we Cyril Wecht was allowed in the National Archives and he reported that Kennedy's brain was missing. All right. Now, 
obviously, if you don't have a brain, you cannot figure out, okay, where the bullet holes entered and exited. And in fact, in fact, that night, that particular night at the autopsy, okay, Kennedy's brain was not weighed. It wasn't weighed until the next day, all right? And it came in at 1,500 grams, which is, look, a full intact brain, okay, all right, comes in at the top end at 1,400 grams, okay? So here you have a brain, okay, that comes in about 100 grams higher than that, but yet we're supposed to believe was blown up, okay? I mean, if you take a look at the witness testimony, okay, it says that, you know, everybody said how damaged Kennedy's brain was, all right? Now, what makes this even worse is that the pictures we have of Kennedy's brain, they depict more or less an intact brain. So in other words, you have a very serious problem between all what the witnesses saw versus what the pictures depict. And you don't have a brain to, to actually decide who's right and who's wrong. So these are the very puzzling things about this autopsy, all right? And in fact, when the review board was set up, Congressman Lewis Stokes, okay, who was the congressional leader of the House Select Committee, actually went to John Thunheim, who was the chairman of the ARB, and he said words to the effect, look, nobody was satisfied with what we did on the medical side. So you should go ahead and do your own inquiry, which the ARB did. It was led by Jeremy Gunn, who was the chief counsel, and Doug Horn, who was the military records analyst. All right. And they did, they interviewed about 13 witnesses and they declassified a lot of the House Select Committee, if not, I think all of the House Select Committee documents okay on this and it's and it's very clear now i there's no question about this now that there was deliberate interference with this autopsy and because of that we will never know the real true circumstances of how kennedy was killed mm -hmm. all right now let me add one last point okay. at that time period the leading medical examiner in America was a guy named Milton Halpern out of New York. In fact, Halpern was the first celebrity uh, medical examiner that there was. Okay, he, he actually made a very big name for himself. All right, he was so convinced that they were gonna call him in to do this autopsy, that A, he packed his bags, and B, he made out a list of the people he wanted assisting him, all right? He never got the phone call. 
Now, why that was, I cannot explain. But instead, they picked three guys who, to put it mildly, uh, were not, I believe, were not qualified to do this job and were not really at this time practicing forensic pathologists. They were really administrators. Okay. Right. So that's the background on, on why this, one of the reasons this case is such a mess. James DiEugenio, a historian and researcher speaking from his home in Burbank, California on the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in June of 1968. The topic is part two of a special series on assassinations airing on the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other Canadian community radio stations across Canada, as well as in the United States, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Here again is more of our conversation. Uh, So basically, I I think what all of that says is that... uh, uh, multiple. I mean, it's more than just multiple people. I mean, you have to have an organization of the of the CIA uh, as well as the, uh, the mob, because you you see signs where you've got mob individuals like Jack Ruby and uh, Santos uh, Traficante and others. I mean, they were all involved as well. And I, I'm just wondering how how does it work in terms of. Uh, like who organized? I mean, was it the CIA enlisting the help of some members of the mafia, or or maybe the other way around, or maybe it was just a certain slice of, of uh, each side, maybe manipulating more vulnerable members on the other side. I mean, do, do you, getting to the point where this film has come out, do you have any clarifications as to exactly who who did it and and who's responsible? Well, in the film, we made some intimations. Okay, but there is no real definite answer to that because there's never been a true investigation of the JFK case by any kind of a body that had enough power, okay, to really make a true true inquiry, all right? But in the film, and I think just through common sense, First of all, you've got Lee Harvey Oswald, who, as Richard Schweiker, Senator Richard Schweiker said, had the fingerprints of intelligence work all over him. All right. You have Jack Ruby, who had, was, as Henry Hurt once said, a man for all seasons. I mean, here's a guy who's in bed with the Dallas police who was an FBI informant, okay, who ran guns into Castro, okay, and uh, had lower echelon 
organized crime connections, all right? And if you put those two together, even the Warren Commission said that Oswald and Ruby were probably connected through the anti-Castro underworld. Even they said that in one of their internal memos, all right? So then if you go ahead and take a look at what happened at the autopsy with all these military guys coming in, this is a quite sophisticated plot. If you go by those three factors that I just mentioned, all right? You know, this, this was not just a hastily put together, you know, in a week kind of thing, you know? This was very likely, you know, a, a, a planned out from the, some of the highest levels in the power elite, all right? And in my opinion, they would have never tried it unless they had the permission from up high. I mean, by the wealthiest and most powerful people in America, because those are the people who controlled the media. And to say the media went to sleep on this case is probably giving them too much credit. I believe that they were actually actively involved in the cover-up. And I can prove that through a number of different ways. For example, with CBS, the Warren Commission report was issued, if I remember correctly, on September the 28th, 1964. The 26 volumes were not released with the commission report. They were not released until November. Yet, the Warren Commission report is 888 pages long. If someone can explain to me how CBS and NBC managed to put together long televised specials within 24 hours after the Warren report was released, I'd like them to explain to me how you can read 888 pages in one day. And on top of that, file all the visual reports that they have. And the answer to that is you can't, it's not possible. So what happened of course, is that somebody was leaking and someone was cooperating, okay? And someone was encouraging, okay, these networks to go ahead and produce what are really, I, I don't see any other way to explain this, what are really cheerleading type endorsements for the Warren Report. There is a... There is a, a document. Uh, that basically, they're saying that there's a, an old uh, CIA operation called Operation Mockingbird, where they actually disperse people to the, the wealthiest or the, the most mainstreaming uh, networks and, and have well, them. No, actually, we have more specific information on this now. In the long version of the film, what's being shown at the Cannes Film Festival was a two-hour version. Okay. There's a longer version of the film coming out. It's four hours. In that version of the film, we actually found out that CBS, through their producer of that 1964 show, a guy named Bernie Birnbaum, 
was actually in contact with the Warren Commission. And he was bringing in these witnesses that the Warren Commission wanted him to put on his program. And he did their bidding. Okay. And this was in the summer of 1964, months before the Warren Commission report was actually published. So we have that right now. We found that article by a woman named Florence Graves uh, who wrote about it and interviewed Bernie Birnbaum. So there isn't anything nebulous about this. Okay, we have it. We know what the facts are. So it's very, very interesting as to why CBS would go ahead and do such a thing. Why NBC would do such a thing. Yeah. Why the New York Times? Yeah, James, I, I, or I wanted to talk about uh, a little bit on the question of the, the motive of, of going after JFK. I mean, we had James Douglas on our program a few years ago. He explained essentially that you know, Kennedy was killed because of his pursuing a more peaceful policy. Uh, which is at cross purposes with the violent nature of the state and particularly the CIA. And, and I think you're more or less on the same page, but are, are there one or two events in particular that got certain players to say, okay, this guy's crossed the line, we're taking him out? I've done a lot of work on this, and I agree with Jim that the foreign policy of John F. Kennedy is what actually motivated his enemies to go ahead and uh, plot his demise. You know, I there's many, many things you can point to because Kennedy was changing foreign policy on so many fronts, you know, which, but I believe that Vietnam was a very important facet of this I also believe that the detente that Kennedy was trying to put together with Castro and Nikita Khrushchev was another aspect of this. All right. Um, today, because of the ARB, there simply isn't any question that Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam. We have these documents now in black and white. When those documents came out in 1997, even the New York Times, if you can believe it, even the New York Times admitted that Kennedy at the time of his death was planning on getting out of Vietnam. If I could just interrupt for a second, I mean, I know that there's a, a famous dissident thinker by the name of Noam Chomsky. Uh, I admit to being a, a bit of a, a Chomsky file myself, but I'm having some issues with some of his points. Uh, he, he mentioned that, uh, that Kennedy actually had been building up war deployments in 61 and 62 and, and setting the stage for further advancement in 64. And he says that uh, JFK was something of a hawk. Uh, here no, that's that's simply not true. Well, and Noam Chomsky is dead wrong on this. Yeah, well, okay. What he's saying is that there's a, not a phrase in the voluminous internal record that even hints at withdrawal without victory. JFK urges that everyone focusing on winning the war withdrawal is conditioned on victory and motivated by domestic discontent with Kennedy's war. The stakes are considered enormous. Nothing substantial changes as the mantle passes to LBJ. So 
uh, just maybe get you to reconcile the, the record. No, well, as I said, he's dead wrong on this. And Noam Chomsky has not done any new work on this for a very long time. Noam Chomsky kind of petered out at the Pentagon Papers. All right. The ARB declassified the meeting of Robert McNamara with uh, all of the CIA, Pentagon, and State Department people in Vietnam, in Hawaii, in, well, there was something like eight of them, all right? In 1962, McNamara requested from the commanding general there, Mr. Harkins, okay, that words of the effect that the president had decided we're going to withdraw from Vietnam. I'm requesting that you go around and order from all these departments a withdrawal schedule from each of them, okay? All right. Supposedly from people who were there, Harkins was completely blindsided by this, all right? And so he told McNamara it would take him a while to get it. So then in May of 1963, at I think it's the 8th SecDef conference in Hawaii, all right, McNamara asked for the schedules. Harkins collected them all from each department, brought them up to McNamara. McNamara looked them over and he said, this isn't fast enough, okay? We have to withdraw this faster because President Kennedy wants everybody out by 1965, okay? All right, and so the tentative schedule was that they would take out 1,000 people every month. Now, one other point of evidence, which Chomsky has no idea of, all right, when McNamara was forced out of his job at the Pentagon by Lyndon Johnson in November of 1967, he went through a debriefing session that is on tape, all right? And we have, we know someone, a friend of mine, John Newman, actually was allowed to listen to this. He was given personal permission by Robert McNamara, while he was still alive, of course, to go into the Pentagon and listen to the tapes. And very clearly on those tapes, he says, President Kennedy and I had decided that we could help the Vietnam cause. In other words, we could send them trainers, we could send them advisors, we could s send them equipment, but we couldn't fight the war for them, all right? You know, if they could not win the war on their own, we shouldn't fight the war for them. And so President Kennedy and I agreed that that was the line that we would not cross, all right? All right, and it didn't matter what the situation was. It didn't matter whether they were winning or whether they were losing, all right? We were not gonna fight the war for the Vietnamese. Now, I don't see how much more clear you can get than those three pieces of evidence. I, I really, really don't, you know? So, you know, all these people who attacked Oliver Stone, all right, before all the evidence was in, were simply wrong. Now, 
let me give you more evidence. Lyndon Johnson was aware of what Kennedy was doing. He was fully aware of this. All right. And he was fully aware that we were losing the war at this time because he was getting these secret reports from his military advisor, Mr. Burris. Okay. So after Kennedy is killed, all right, what happens is that he goes ahead and turns around McNamara on this issue. He says words to the effect, you know, I had to listen to all that about you and the president wanting to withdraw, you know, for all those months. I kept quiet because I was only the vice president. He was the president. I was always thinking in another conversation, how the hell can McNamara pull out of a war that we're losing? Okay. So again, Johnson knew exactly what he was doing and he knew what the situation was and he was going to reverse Kennedy's policy. And then he tries to do, he tries to disguise the fact that he's doing so by saying that he was continuing what Kennedy was doing, which he was not. And he knew he was not. And the advisors that were left over from the Kennedy administration were angry about this. Okay. And so you can hear McNamara on another tape with Johnson, where Johnson says there was a meeting the other night at Roland Evans' house. Some of the Kennedy people were saying that I was trying to put the war on Kennedy's tomb. So in other words, everybody in the White House knew what the heck was happening. Yeah. Kennedy was getting out. Johnson was reversing that policy. And the terrible, terrible thing he was doing was trying to disguise the fact that he was breaking with that policy. And we have that on tape now. Now, now really, <laughs> I don't see how it gets any more convincing than that. I really, really don't. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, I'm going to bring up another voice. I mean, there's a fellow who's a, a fan of, of yours and who's been pursuing uh, his own uh, investigations. His name is Mark Rabinowitz. And, uh, you know, he says that, that, I mean, individual investigators are, you know, in themselves uh, maybe making certain mistakes. Um, for example, he says that, uh, that, well, one thing that they should be focused on is that it's more important to understand not the how it happened, but why, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, not, I'm not sure that you're not on the same page, but maybe, ask, maybe I'll ask you about mistakes made by investigators and, and researchers. I mean, what... Uh, are there these anything that you're doing that uh, might, you know, somehow be helping these keep these mysteries stay hidden as opposed to bringing it forth? Well, it's important not to lose sight of the big picture. Okay, that's that's an important thing to do. You have to understand the big picture, like, you know, Fletcher Prouty once said, you know, uh, there's scenery and then there's the big picture. And the big picture is all the things, of course, that happened after uh, Kennedy was removed from office. And, and in my books, I've gone over this very thoroughly, especially Destiny Betrayed, the second edition. All right, that's when where I list and I describe how Johnson, who was much more of a cold warrior, all right, you know, than, than Kennedy ever was, 
all right, then that he went ahead and very much changed the things that JFK was doing. Him and the CIA and the Pentagon, which he was much more friendly with than Kennedy was, went ahead and they changed things in Vietnam, the Dominican Republic, okay, the Congo, the Middle East, Indonesia. And Indonesia, there ended up being a bloodbath, all right, in 1965. That's another very, very much overlooked part of the equation, all right? Now, but again, but I'm not one to say that you should disregard the on-the-ground evidence either. You know, I, I think you have to couple the overall why question, okay, with how the plot was implemented. And I try and balance both of those. In Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, which I think is my best book, okay, that's what I tried to do, is I tried to put the how the thing happened and then putting in the why bookending the begin the beginning of the book and the end of the book with all these changes that happened, you know, as a result of Kennedy being removed from office. All right. Because, uh, you know, like Fletcher Prouty said his famous line, qui bono, in other words, who benefits, you know, from the removal of President Kennedy. All right. And I think it's pretty obvious that the middle, the military industrial complex did pretty well. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're, we're starting to run out of time, but I, maybe I'll, I'll ask you uh, maybe one last uh, question. Uh, getting back to the, the latest film, uh, but th there's also the release of the classified information in, in eight, like 2029 is only eight years away, you know, so I, I'm wondering at this point, as opposed to, say, you know, 30 years ago, uh, do you feel that we are getting close to the advancement of, of a real uh, outcome, of a solution of the JFK assassination, or is this kind of going to continue pretty much forever? I mean, what, what as somebody who's been studying this now for almost 30 years, you know, what, what is your honest, well, I guess more than that, but uh, what is your honest impression, you know, of what the state of this case is going to be versus where we were at 30 years ago? Well, first of all, it's not 2029 anymore. Because of the ARB, all this stuff should have been out there in 2017. But Donald Trump postponed it. And in fact, he postponed it and left it up to Joe Biden. So, you know, now the terminal date is supposed to be the fall of 2021. So hopefully we'll get the last documents in the fall of 2021. All right. Which is a few months from now. As far as. First of all, yes, I think the new documents have helped us a lot. OK, in trying to solve this case. In fact, I think they've been very important. And anybody who doesn't say that hasn't studied them. Okay. Um, so I think, I believe, as I outlined before, uh, I think you can outline something here, okay, as to what really happened between the CIA and the Pentagon and in a minor role 
organized crime, okay? I think they brought in Jack Ruby uh, on a mission because they had to shut up Oswald because they were worried he was going to talk. If you don't know this, on Saturday night, Oswald tried to make a phone call to this guy named John Hurt in North Carolina who used to work for the Pentagon and was allegedly involved with the Navy defector program, okay, in the early 60s. All right. And that call was not allowed to go through. And so many people think that Oswald was seeking instructions as to what should he do now. And then, of course, we know what happened the next day. Okay. Ruby went in and killed him. All right. So that's my idea. Okay. About, and I, I, there's a lot of evidence today in which you can carry that out with. Wow. Well, um, yeah, Jim Diogenio, I know it's, it's been, uh, there's an immense amount of, of information stored on, on the Kennedy assassination stored in your brain. And, and I think it would take at least 20, at least 25 hours to digest everything <laughs> you know about JFK. But I, I mean, I guess I got to cut you off after, uh, about the 55 minute mark or so. Um, I mean, perhaps we could talk more at, at a later date. But uh, I want to thank you for, for sharing uh, a slice of your knowledge with our listeners. And uh, I guess we'll, you'll be returning again in a week's time. Uh, we'll be exploring another assassination with us. Yes, yes. I think you wanted to go through uh, the King case and the Malcolm X case, right? Okay. Well, good. Well, well, well I guess we'll, we'll see you then. Uh, okay. Thanks again for, uh, for talking to us. And... Uh, I look forward to seeing you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, we've been speaking with James DiEugenio. He's the author of several updates of Just Me Betrayed, Reclaiming Parkland, and the Assassinations Probe Magazine on the JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He also has the website uh, kennedysandking.com uh, with materials related to one or more of the assassination topics. The film JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass got a lot of attention from both fellow critics of the official story as well as detractors of the analysis. Stephen Dalton of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, Aiming for a forensic procedural tone in the Errol Morris mold, JFK Revisited is loaded with fascinating historical nuggets, dirty little secrets, and partisan claims dressed up as objective journalism. There are no major new shock revelations here, but plenty of thought-provoking subplots that will encourage curious viewers to do their own research. In commercial terms, the film has potentially wide appeal to two disparate groups, those who share Stone's conspiratorial worldview and those who enjoy debunking his paranoid polemics. With smart marketing to both sides, he could have a hit on his hands. Owen Glaberman of Variety said, According to the documentary, JFK wanted to mend fences, bring a progressive vision to the world, make friends out of nations and forces that the CIA preferred to preserve as enemies. He wanted to neuter the CIA itself. There's no question that the CIA 
by the early 60s was a rogue organization that helped to carry out assassinations and was responsible for other scurrilous actions. This is not news, so it isn't hard to make the agency sound like ominous culprits and to make the director of central intelligence, Alan Dulles, who was fired by JFK over the Bay of Pigs fiasco, into a sinister schemer because that's what he was. His very presence on the Warren Commission is treated by the movie as a scandal, and maybe that's the case. Yet the theory that the CIA assassinated Kennedy remains in Through the Looking Glass, an ominous abstraction supported by random wisps of circumstantial evidence. The Daily Beast, however, was much, much more critical writing through author Casper Solomon. Stone is presenting this new film made 30 years after his Kevin Costner starring film JFK caused a big hoopla as an explosive investigation into what really went down in 1963. Presenting the film in person in Cannes, Stone claimed that nothing less than the essence of democracy was at stake in establishing the true events around Kennedy's killing. Yet what he has concocted reads more like a YouTube conspiracy video that might have been made by somebody called O Stone Watch This Now For Truth Re JFK with abysmal PowerPoint-style graphics and talking head. Appearances by both who have certainly written books about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, a subject which isn't exactly like lacking in crackpots. Regardless of one's view, it is getting significant press attention. That's it for this week's edition of the Assassins series. On next week's installment, we'll take an in-depth look into the murder of the legendary figure, Dr. Martin Luther King. You're tuned to the Global Research News Hour's special summer series, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We can be heard on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and are available for download at the site globalresearch.ca. Music heard on this week's program is the song Shifting Sands by Purple Planet and available at the site purple-planet.com. If you have feedback on this or any other topic you hear on the series, or if there is a topic you would like us to explore on a future date, you can send us a message. Our email is globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.